I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to Dr. Bonnie Henry. Okay, Dr. Henry, welcome. Now, you are a public health officer. Um, What is a public health officer to you? There's a whole lot to it. And I think people are learning that perhaps in this pandemic where they might not have known what we did before. So I'm a physician that's trained in public health. We do a specialty training in what's called community medicine or public health and preventive medicine. And really, we're trained in looking at a whole community of people, whereas a family doctor um, looks at an individual and wants to do everything for that individual. Um, in public health, we look at what are the things that keep populations healthy and communities healthy? And how do we prevent disease transmission? How do we prevent people from getting sick in the first place? So it really is a wide variety of things, everything from helping people quit smoking to um, dealing with pandemics. That, that's great. That's a very holistic uh, perspective on, on health care. It is. It is. You know, and it really is we realize that there are so many things that affect our health as a population or as a community, as a neighborhood even. Everything, what we call the the social determinants of health. So things like how much education we get and what neighborhood we live in and all of those things make a difference in terms of our ability to achieve our own best possible health. Sounds very complex, a lot of moving pieces. That is absolutely right. And that's one of the things that I love about the work that I do is that there's always something um, and there's always something new and different. And you're continuously learning and uh, learning from what's happening around us, uh, trying to understand things better and trying to make a difference in people's health. Now, I'm curious, um, how did you get into this work? What's your background? Well, like, like many people, I took a little bit of a roundabout way. I think as a, as a young person, I, w- I was always fascinated with medicine, and that was something that I knew I, would, I wanted to go into, but I didn't know what type of medicine I wanted to practice. And my sister tells the story of when we were kids and she had her appendix out, and I came to visit her in the hospital and that I was enamored with it all, and that's when I decided I was going to be a doctor. Um, and then when I was in medical school, I... I joined the military because I didn't have a lot of money and needed to, and didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. So it, it was a chance to have a little bit of an adventure. So I was a physician in the, uh, after I graduated from medical school and did my internship, I worked in the Navy mostly. Um, although I was what they call a flight surgeon as well. So I learned all about flight medicine and I learned all about diving medicine and the environment. And I also spent quite a lot of time as a physician in a ship, um, mostly mostly with guys at that time. I, when I first joined the ship, I was the only woman on board. But then I learned about populations and things like how do we keep a whole crew of, uh, normally when I went to sea in the, the ship that I was in, 
Uh, we had three or four other ships as well. And so I was the doctor for the, about a thousand people out in the middle of the ocean <laughs> before we had, we had one satellite phone and, and it was, uh, yeah, so that was really challenging. And I got to learn a lot about how disease transmits, about how to keep people healthy when you're in a, in a, a group like that going to, to places around the world. So I became really interested in that concept of us as a as a population or a community, not just a, an individual. Um, and then I went into family practice for a while, um, and I moved down to San Diego with my uh, with my husband at the time, and he got a, was transferred down there for his job, and I started working at an inner city community clinic in San Diego, where. In the United States, they, you know, not everybody has health insurance and not everybody can even get the basics of health care. And I started a clinic for a number of our patients who had diabetes to help them work together to manage their diabetes and things like this. And uh, one of my, my dear friends and mentors was the, uh, the director of the clinic, and she also was the director of a preventive medicine residency program or specialty training. And so she said, look at how you approach things. You need to be a public health doctor. <laughs> so I went to, back to school and did my master's in uh, public health and epidemiology and did a specialty training in, uh, in public health medicine. The way you described it at first, uh, epidemiology sounds so complex. There's so many uh, aspects that you have to look at, but it makes uh, sense when you describe it like that. When you start up with a smaller community of just, you know, a thousand people on an isolated boat, um, and then you can scale it up to look at the whole world or a whole country. <laughs> well, exactly. And, you know, how things affect people can really make a difference by your own background, your own experience, your own underlying health. And and we've seen that uh, over and over again in things like the pandemic that we're dealing with now. But then the, the science part of it, the epidemiology part of it was really fascinating to me too, because I always was a big Sherlock Holmes fan. <laughs> and it really is investigating, you know, putting all those pieces together and actually figuring out what's causing something to happen. So it's looking at, you know, person, place and time, we call it. So, you know, what is it? Who's getting sick and where are they getting sick and why are they getting sick and what time frame is it? And can we narrow it down to what did they have in common that uh, allowed them, you know, a virus to transmit or and did they eat the same food or were they exposed to the same uh, environmental thing? So that's the, the really fun detective part, disease detective part of what we do. When you describe it like that, it does sound really entertaining or really enjoyable. Well, I, you know, sometimes it's not. I, I'm not sure the word enjoyable would be in there because um, usually we're dealing with people who are getting ill for a reason that we may or may not know. But actually finding that reason is one of the things that is very rewarding and helps, uh, you know, makes you realize, OK, well, it is a new virus that's emerged out of China that's somehow made it here. And, and now what can we do to stop people from getting sick? So it's always looking at what are the things that we can do once we know what's happening? How do we stop it from happening again? And we, you know, it's everything from we had West Nile virus, which is a virus that's transmitted by mosquitoes. 
and it, mosquito bites. And so the whole thing was, okay, this arose and we saw it in New York City. It was making birds in the zoo sick. And then a clinician saw some people in hospital with an unusual swelling of the brain and, and put the two, it was the public health officer, put the two and two together and realized that this was a new virus. And then here in, in BC, we had to look at, well, do we have the mosquitoes that can carry it? Will it last? Will they survive over the winter? You know, all of these really fascinating pieces that you put together. Since you are a detective of sorts, uh, let's go back in your case histories. And um, what are you most proud of? Or um, what projects uh, do you look back at and think, you know, that was really good? There, there are so many, you know, these things are really fascinating, the scope of the work that we do. One of the first things that really helped me recognize that I was interested in this was we were in the ship that I was in in the Navy early on, and and we had gone in port in a, a, one of the Pacific Islands, I think it was Papiati in Tahiti, and we had, um, and afterwards we were out at sea again, and people were starting to get sick with uh, vomiting and diarrhea, and I was able to figure out who had what and trace it back to this bottled water that we had brought on board. And of course, we had this little microscope on the end, and I was able to find that the water had been contaminated and they had essentially repackaged water and it was, uh, it wasn't sterile and that was making people sick. So that was really cool to be able to actually find the cause and, and, and know what the solution was. And then I've got to do all kinds of really amazing things. Um, you know, I, I think in public health, immunization is one of the most amazing things that we have. And I've been working uh, globally to get rid of um, polio and to do polio um, immunization campaigns around the world. And I've had the, the real um, privilege of working in places like Pakistan and Afghanistan and and knowing that giving polio drops to children there can save their lives in ways that we can't even imagine anymore in the West. Because if you get paralyzed with polio, your chances of actually living to a, an adult and contributing to, to society go down dramatically because there just isn't access to care and other things that people need. So, you know, the, the, the miracle that we have of vaccination is something that I've always been passionate about. And then I've done all kinds of fun things like doing rectal squabs and miniature goats <laughs> to detect E. coli in a, in a petting zoo. There was kids that were getting sick in an agricultural fair in London, Ontario, and I was the field epidemiologist. And with the team, we, we tracked it down. We did this questionnaire and found out that all of the most of the kids that were getting sick had gone to um, the petting zoo and there's these miniature animals there and anyway so we found the same E. coli that was making them sick in the petting zoo and you know these are all really neat things that you think when I went into medicine you know would I know the the life cycle of a mosquito <laughs> would I learn the details of, of how E. coli is transmitted in, in uh, animals and, and making humans sick um, and you know of course I was involved with the, the SARS outbreak in Toronto in 2003 and um, really learned so much about when there's a when there's a new virus that I mean, at the beginning, we didn't even know if it was a virus or a bacteria or a toxin that was making people sick, particularly with SARS. It was uh, healthcare workers were getting sick and there was so much fear around 
not knowing what was going on with the virus, not knowing who was going to get sick next, and being able to pull that story together and to be able to to put in place things that protected people, but also you know all of the basic things that we do in public health, keeping sick people away from well people and and supporting them. Care of the community is something that I say that we do in public health, supporting the community to get through that. And I learned so much about the importance of us as physicians and leaders to to communicate how to care for a community when they're going through a crisis like that. And, you know, we've seen this on a global scale now in the last year. Um, going back to your work in Pakistan, I've got to say one of my dear friends actually got one of those vaccinations and she's here today because of you So and contributing to Canadian society. So, Well, you know, it was one of the wonders of being there was, um, you know, that the young girls don't have a lot of opportunities in many areas of Pakistan. Um, especially the poorer areas in the, the northwest frontier province and others, and to be um, to be there and to, for them to see me, and they, they'd always want to touch my hair because I have blonde hair, and that's unusual there. <laughs> but uh, you know, to try and think that maybe some young girl got inspired by the fact that they could do something. Now you do very serious work. Um... And particularly during a pandemic, it's all hands on deck, and you put your hand or your head down and just plow through the work. But uh, in uh, in between pandemics and at lighter times, um, there's always room for some levity and, and fun in the workplace. Uh, do you ever have any fun in the workplace, or? <laughs> Oh, yes. Well, you know, uh, we like to. I think public health people have a good sense of humor and, you know, we take each other. Uh, we, we like to play jokes on each other. And a lot of it has to do with uh, uh, things that we um, foods and I illnesses that come with different things. So, yeah, we I can't think of anything specifically off the top of my head, but there's uh, there's lots of little jokes that we little in jokes we play with each other. <laughs> Wonderful. I hope you um I hope you make some time for fun. <laughs> I I you know this is the other thing that I really enjoy about the work that I do in public health is I I say this to new residents and new trainees when they're coming into the field that in public health you're never alone. There's always a community of of public health practitioners who think the same way you do who are there for you and. You know, I never more have we needed that, or at least I've needed that than through this pandemic. And, you know, I talk to my colleagues across the country, the chief medical officers of health in every province and territory, and Teresa Tam, Howard New at the Public Health Agency. And, you know, at one point we were talking to each other pretty much every day. But we also, we and we have a special advisory committee and we do all of the, the sort of big um all the work that we need to do from the national perspective, but then on Sundays we've had we have our uh, our just our our group hug I call it or our therapy sessions and it's just the chief medical officers of health so it's a much smaller group and we talk about you know what are we thinking what are we worried about how are we going to address these things together and it, it is that sense of community and trying to do the best that we can together that is so so important in, and really reflects how we try and do things in public health and why it's such an amazing specialty to be in. Now, I'm curious, what is your, you've mentioned a few wonderful uh, aspects of your work, but what's your absolute favorite part? You know, I think it has to be, well, there's a couple of things. One is, of course, the people that I work with, um, because we, we 
have this, we debate everything and everybody has an opinion on things. But at the end of the day, you know, we're a very supportive community and, and a very inclusive community and doing a lot of work um, to try and to really go upstream in health. And I say that, uh, you know, when I look at some of the things that I'm, I'm most proud of is I, one of the people on my team, uh, Dr. Danielle Bain-Smith is a Indigenous physician and we are just committed to acting reconciliation and really not just talking about it anymore, but recognizing that health of Indigenous people is so, um, the inequities that we see are so much related to public policy and things that, to colonization, to intergenerational trauma. And that we can't move ahead in reconciliation until we address the the needs and the health needs of the history that we have. And to be able to to do that and make progress. You know, those are the things that that, that really keep us motivated every day because we can make a difference, a huge difference in people's lives. Yeah, it's amazing how reconciliation really extends to every aspect of society and uh, even healthcare. Uh, now I'm going to ask the inverse question. Uh, what's the the least enjoyable or the the most challenging aspect of your work? I know those are two slightly different questions, but yeah, you know the 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 hardest part is always when you're talking to individuals about the tragedies that have happened to them. And I think through this last year, you know, the 1,754 people that we've lost to COVID the over 7,000 people that we've lost to our, our toxic drug crises and toxic drug deaths that we've had here in BC. So the things that I find hardest and most challenging are when you know, the, these complex emergencies that we're dealing with and how so many things are interactive and are interact, inter, <laughs> they, they interact on each other and they're complex and there's no one single answer. And sometimes it's so, so hard because we want a single answer that's going to make a difference. And it, it sometimes feels like it's incremental, just a little bit here and a little bit there. Um, and that can be very, very frustrating. And it, it, sometimes the, the political climate and the climate, small p political climate or the societal climate for making those important changes that we know will make a difference is just not there. And so you have to keep that in your back pocket. And my predecessor, Perry Kendall, used to say, you know, you can you can make a point or you can make a difference. And sometimes it is important to make a point, to take a stand about something. But many times it's about knowing, having those things that we need in our back pocket so when the time is right that they can be implemented, we have them there. Um, things like um, making immunization of, of uh, reportable to public health so for schools so that we know which kids are immunized and which schools are most likely to have an outbreak of measles or something. Um, make things like uh, um, one of the things in my back pocket for a long time has been um, the inequities that we have in women in the workforce um, because of unintended pregnancies and having free contraception for young women. And so that's been a, a promise that government has uh, has agreed to recently. So those are things that, you know, you just you build that level of trust. And then when a when an opportunity presents itself, you have the answers there that can make a difference. 
So sometimes it's really, really frustrating to wait. <laughs> but then sometimes it can be helpful. <laughs> That's interesting. It sounds like what got you into epidemiology is also sometimes the hardest part, uh, the fact that you care so much, uh, but also the um, complicated nature uh, and the the clue solving and there's so many different layers of of the the exactly the problem solving that has to go on and sometimes it feels like we're not making any progress at all and then and then you hit a a, a period of time where suddenly it's the right thing to do and people recognize it and you can make huge differences in a very small period of time i'm going to shift the direction a little bit um to ask, do you feel like you belong to any underrepresented communities? I mean, you, you are a woman, but I'm not sure if that's an underrepresented community in your field. Um, and how do you feel that's impacted your, your work or your studies? Well, I, I can say that as, as a woman in medicine, when I uh, got my medical degree 31 years ago, um, and then going into the Navy, I definitely was underrepresented for quite a long time. <laughs> I learned a lot about that, about uh, what it's like to be the only woman in a large group of people. Um, in public health, yeah, we do have a lot more uh, women and good, strong female leaders in public health, and that's uh, that's amazing. But, you know, I am the first uh, female provincial health officer in this province in British Columbia. So and our first female chief public health officer is, is Dr. Teresa Tam. I think um, I recognize, though, my privilege in that I come from a middle class uh, household. I was able to go to university. Um, I had parents who supported my education, well, my desire for education. <laughs> and, you know, I got scholarships and people who celebrated the fact that I was, uh, when I was younger, that I was smart and that I was ambitious in a, in a way. And ambition is something that I know even now it's, um, not a, a characteristic that's seen as a positive in women. So I, I like to think that we're making change and making a difference. And I know that um, I come from very much a place of privilege in that. And many, many people have many more challenges, but I think I can understand some of those. And it is important to me to, to make sure that people do have those opportunities. Well, I think you've taken uh, that privilege and definitely uh, magnified it for other people uh, with less less privilege. And um, thank you. That's uh, that's one thing I try. And, you know, I'm quite excited. Uh, there's a lot of, I, I've talked about this a lot, I'm an introvert. And so this whole being in the public eye through this whole last year and a half has been very hard on me. <laughs> but if I think about the thing that I'm most proud of is that I hear from young people, young girls, but young people across the board, that um, they see that as a, a strong female voice being a leader is important and that that it's okay and they're proud of me and it's inspiring. So that makes it all worthwhile for me. You mentioned earlier that you feel that uh, public health is an open and welcoming field. What about epidemiology? Did you feel that those were open and welcoming fields too, or were they more insular? I think public health is much more... Um, open and it, just by the nature of what we do. But having said that, most of the leaders in public health have been men up until very recently. And I think that reflects uh, medicine as well. Epidemiology can be challenging um, because there are people who are um, PhD and, uh, and do a, a very deep dive into some aspect of epidemiology. 
And we have uh, a lot of them who are there now criticizing or critiquing, I shouldn't say critiquing, critiquing everything that we do and all the decisions that we make through this pandemic. Um, and then there's physician epidemiologists like me who do a master's degree. And so, you know, we're we're at a different level sometimes in that whole university sphere where the PhDs rule. So uh, I think there's a lot of uh, work that can be done on that to be more inclusive and recognize um, everybody's different piece of it and how we can work together. And one of the things that I'm really proud of is early on in this pandemic, uh, we, I pulled together one of my colleagues, uh, we pulled together a, a network of modelers and epidemiologists from several different universities that provided us with advice and the best data that we could have from all of the different minds working together. You know, that's one thing that I've learned in, in my academic side of my career was always have really smart PhD students working for you because you learn everything from them. And, you know, giving those opportunities for the, the developing Nobel scientists to contribute has been um, and, and to make sure that they that they have that, that the ability to voice um, their thoughts and ideas. And it's made a huge difference for us in how we understand the progression that we've gone through in this pandemic. Sounds like you're really committed to um, creating a welcoming and, and uh, inclusive environment. Uh, I'm curious, what do you do when there isn't a pandemic raging? <laughs> <laughs> well, believe it or not, there, there's, this is one of the things about the field that I'm in. It's, it's so wide ranging. There is everything that we um, that we're involved in, whether it's immunization programs, whether it's uh, foodborne illnesses, restaurant inspections, long-term care homes, uh, managing uh, the infection control and prevention in care homes. And then there's all the the day-to-day -day chronic disease prevention. You know, how do we get healthier kids? How do we work with schools to incorporate uh, health messages in the right way for children? And of course, some of the things that we've been dealing with uh, long term right now are um, the, the the public health emergency that we have around the toxic drug supply and people who use drugs and um, drinking water. There's been a whole lot of work that we've been doing in BC on drinking water that I have a leadership role on. So it is diverse, which is the excitement. And there's always something. And every time you think uh, that you're over something and you can relax, we have things like wildfires and smoke and heat and all of the health messages and the things that we put in place in our community to try and protect people from those environmental things. Um, the whole uh, um, push that we have around climate change and how do we influence the healthy built environment to manage things like climate change. So, yeah, there's never a paucity of uh, <laughs> things that we need to be involved with. It's a public health whack-a-mole. <laughs> It is <laughs> in many ways. And, you know, this is where it's a team sport as well. You know, there's people who have expertise in different areas. And I'm a bit of a generalist, which is why I'm doing the job that I'm doing. Um, but my expertise is, is a lot of it is around understanding health information and data, what we call surveillance. So routine um, looking out for things that can cause illness and trying to find solutions to prevent it. Um, whether it's a communicable disease like COVID or measles or foodborne illnesses like salmonella, or whether it's uh, um, exposure to uh, wildfire smoke, you know, these are all things that that we're involved in. 
what would you recommend to anyone who's listening? Uh, or what, what background or courses uh, would you uh, recommend to any students who are listening who want to uh, follow in your footsteps? I think there's a couple of things that I would say. Um, you know, I think there's there's an art of medicine and there's the science of medicine. So yes, you need to have the maths and the sciences, and that's really important. And my undergrad degree was in biochemistry, which I thought was really fascinating at the time. <laughs> but I always took uh, um, an arts class, and for me, it was always around uh, literature. I'm I love books and, and um, so I, reading and I think reading helps you understand people's minds and how things work. And so I would say um, always have that humanity side, too, because what we do in public health, what we do in medicine is really about communicating to people and communicating to people when they're often in a crisis because they're not sure what's happening, whether that's on a one-to-one -one basis or in a community basis. And so being able to, to give people the information they need to make those best possible choices and to support them in making those choices and give people the means to do that is something that I believe in. And I think that we need to hone our skills, not only in data and science and understanding how things work and what the answers are, but in helping people know what to do as well and give people the means to do it. And that's the philosophy we've had during this pandemic, that we provide people with the information that we know and give people what they need to take the right um, decisions and to, to get through this together. And I really believe there's an art to it as well that we need to we need to foster that human side is something that we often forget with uh with medicine but it explains your bedside manner which was so good that you were able to coach an entire province through uh the pandemic a lot of them i think it, it, it was uh i think it was um Oh, Einstein, who said if you if you can't explain it simply you don't understand it <laughs> <laughs> i found that too so i'm also curious, what do you consider to be the most important course or courses that you took when you were in school? It's hard to remember looking back on this. Um, in 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 grade school, you know, I was once some. I I think, and I see this in in the young people in my life that, especially girls, there's this sort of maybe it's it's changing, but there's still a, a bias against going into maths and sciences. And I think we need to look at how we educate all children to find their own interests. But you really do, I mean, math is math is something that we don't, I mean, we all roll our eyes and trying to explain <laughs> these things to young people, but, um, but math is something we use in our day-to-day -day life. You know, walking down the street and passing somebody is is physics, right? It's relative velocity. Am I going to hit them? Am I going to get to the the corner before the car comes? That's all math. You know, how do I pay my bills? <laughs> so I think uh, I would encourage people to to continue to take that wide spectrum of of uh, things that that give you that basic underpinning of how you can then continue to learn. Um, and not give up on it. And particularly for girls, don't give up on, on sciences and math and don't ever let anybody tell you you're no good at math. It's all a matter of finding a way to, to make it interesting to you. And there's different ways of doing that. And so I, you know, I really think about, I had some teachers that 
um, that inspired me and encouraged me to 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 be smart, and that was okay, and it was okay to be nerdy and sciencey. <laughs> <laughs> you actually um, anticipated my my next question. Um, who was inspiring to you when you were getting started? Yeah, you know, I was. Uh, I, my father was in the military, so we moved around a lot. So I was always the new kid at school. <laughs> so I had a few teachers along the way that were really, really supportive. But then I, I've been really lucky in in medicine to have some really strong mentors. Um, the person that I mentioned in San Diego, her name's Linda Hill. She still works in San Diego at the medical clinic, and you know she really helped me see uh, where my where my strengths and my um, interests were, and my passion was in in public health. And uh, I also had the privilege of working with uh, Sheila Basra, who was the medical officer of health in the city of Toronto during the the SARS outbreak, and and became also a dear friend and mentor to me. And unfortunately, she passed away in two thousand and eight, but. I have a little picture of her right here by my desk, and I think of her a lot. But she was the one who really helped me understand the importance of communication and talking to people and how that can help us get through a crisis together. And then I, I have Dr. Perry Kendall, who's my uh, my predecessor in this role, who I still talk to regularly <laughs> and uh, who's been so supportive. And, but I think it's really important. I try and I have a group of residents that have come through that have worked with me and I try and pass on to them some of the same support and, and encouragement that I get from that I was lucky enough to get from others as well. Uh, it's great that you have such a, a rich network of uh, inspirational sources and you've been such a source of insp inspiration this entire time too. Uh, I'm sure we'll see quite a few Bonnies uh, being born. <laughs> The There's some puppies. <laughs> There's a, a Bonnie and Henry, um, <laughs> the uh, there we go, the guide dogs. <laughs> they're, they're so cute, and, and people can't see, but I'm holding up a picture of very cute little labs. <laughs> you mentioned your um, your students. Uh, what do you look for when you're choosing your grad students or your PhD students? You know, I, I've had a number of, well, residents, PhD students, but particularly with the PhD students, because it is a, a field of, of intense work, um, really what I look at for is somebody with uh, imagination and um, thoughtfulness and, and somebody who's really self-driven. I, I mean, where where what I can do is support them and give them the means to to fly, right? Um, so people who have really cool ideas that are things that I don't know about but need to answer the question. So I, I'm really a believer in applied public health and you know, there's there's many people who've approached me to be part of their their committees, but they're working in an area that is not something that is a, an area of focus for me. And so, um, as much as some of them are quite brilliant, I have to to realize that you know it, it's not going to be I'm not going to be able to give them what they need in a mentor. So, um, finding people that have interests in the areas that we're working on, and, and then. I've been so, so lucky because I've had so many brilliant young people and then they come back and work with us <laughs> and, and it's great. I feel like a mother hen sometimes. 
I do notice that most of most fields, uh, professional fields, are changing very, very quickly. And the field that you enter uh, at the beginning of your career can be completely different by the time that you retire. Um, so what advice do you have for young people who want to get into public health and epidemiology to anticipate some of those changes? You know, I think one of the things that that I have learned and that I've tried to communicate through this pandemic is that science, whether it's epidemiology, medicine, any of the sciences that we uh, changes, and it is all about change and evolution, and it's about science in action, learning as we go, and uh, so what I would say is that the things that you believe are true now may not be true five years from now or 10 years from now or 30 years from now. Um, but the things, you know, that that's okay. And to not resist, to, to recognize your own biases, because we always want to take comfort in what we know. And sometimes it's, and this is another reason why it's so important to have um, grad students, because they challenge what we know. Um, but then the other part of it from, excuse me, from my perspective and as a physician in the position I'm in now is that uh, you have to develop a comfort to make decisions with imperfect information. Because when we're in a crisis like this one, um, we there are many things that we don't know. So we have to take what we know from other fields and correlate it. And we have to be able, because not making a decision can be as harmful to people and can cost lives as much as making a decision. So that's something that I would say to people is don't become dogmatic and and be able to develop that comfort of making the best possible decision with the best possible information you have now and being open to relooking at it every time something new comes up. Because as uncomfortable as it is, it is important that we make the best possible decisions we can in the, in the moment, um, or else we can it can lead to tragedy. That's great advice, not just for epidemiology and public health, but for life in general. Yeah, you know, we we think sometimes that science is truth and truth is static, but it's not. It, it's evolving and growing, and we learn as we go. Now, um, looking to the long term, I'm curious, what would you like to have as your legacy when you eventually retire? I don't know. I feel like I'm too young to think about a legacy. <laughs> but I just had another birthday. <laughs> My friends and I were saying, I think we get a year off <laughs> because of the pandemic. We'll take that one over. You know, I think if, if I have a legacy, it would be about um, the importance of, of words and words matter and helping us get through a crisis, a health crisis that affects everybody. Um, that I spoke to people's better nature and that we recognize the importance and the power of kindness and how if we allow kindness and compassion to guide how we respond, um, that we'll all get through it a whole, a whole lot more safely and, and better. That's great. And I think you're well on, on your way to achieving that legacy, for sure. Um, just one quick question. We've all uh, now, we're all wearing masks all the time, or at least we were. Uh, we've probably got a few masks. What's on your favorite mask? Oh, goodness. I have a, I have a whole collection of them, <laughs> but uh, um, some of my favorite. Uh, I have um, 
there's a, a person who's been sending me these lovely masks that have uh, bee patterns, bumblebee patterns, and they and then she's embroidered on them. Be kind, be calm, be safe. <laughs> and uh, there are many different colors, so I wear them frequently to to match my outfits. <laughs> Wonderful. And you were always so well dressed. It was always, um, yeah, <laughs> you've become a fashion icon as well. Well, Dr. Henry, those are all my questions. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Uh, is there anything you want to say before I let you go? Just that, uh, you know, thank you for having me on. And I hope that some of this has inspired people about how, how science is really fascinating and it affects our lives and that they can go into a field that looks after communities and looks after people. And it's um, and don't be afraid. It's exciting. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen on Spotify Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.